As I was reading this story this week and thinking about it, it was these words that continued to come to my mind. This story marks a severe turning point in the story not only of David, but of David's entire family, of the office of the king, and in the history of the people of Israel. This summer, as we've moved through stories told in First and Second Samuel, it's been clear that there have been cracks in the plaster of the palace of this mightiest of kings. But those cracks in this story become chasms. You might say that this story infects David's legacy. It infects his descendants. And it is this story that marks the beginning of the collapse of this united kingdom. After this story, one of David's sons will rape one of David's daughters. Brothers begin to attack and kill each other. Wives conspire. Literal battles are fought between family members. David's selfishness, deceitfulness, and violent self-preservation shine through in this story and set a dark tone for his descendants' descent into chaos. James Howell says that after this story, notice how wickedness becomes appealing, plunges everybody into depravity. Joab and others are entirely loyal to this man. And this is not just an oops sin committed by this one guy, says Howell. The whole nation takes a decades-long turn for the worst, as do the lives of David's own children. Sin has its consequences. David could try to justify himself. He instead shoves his family and his country off of a cliff. This morning, we're going to take a look at this story and study it from the narrative perspective. There's not a lot of stories in the scripture that have such a stark narrative, such a brilliantly told narrative. And so as we look at the scripture this morning, we're going to look at what the text really says. So we'll start from the beginning. In the time of the year of the kings, in the time of year that the kings go forth to make war, David sent Joab, his trusted right-hand man. He sent his officers. He sent all of Israel to destroy the Ammonites. And yet David stayed in Jerusalem. There are a couple things to notice in this rather loaded introduction to this story. First, this story of David's personal violence happens amid a story of national violence. A war with the Ammonites serves as the backdrop to this story, and this war will not conclude until the end of chapter 12, after the conclusion of this story, when David goes and takes the capital of the Ammonites. The narrator brackets this personal story of violence with another story of violence and highlights the results. The second thing that I want you to notice is the way that this first verse is constructed. The first part of this verse is extensive. It provides a setting, the time of year, the general task of the kings in the season, and then it describes all of the people that have been mustered to fight this battle. Joab, the officers, and the Hebrew really says all of Israel were sent to fight. All of these people are sent by the king. And the second part of the verse, though, is just three simple words in the Hebrew, four in English. These three words are given equal weight to all that has come before them, and they provide a stark contrast. David stayed in Jerusalem. 
I want you to remember way back to the beginning of this sermon series. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel warns the people of what they will receive in a king. The king will take. He will take your money. He will take your food. He will take your fields. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your labor. He will take your smiths. And with them he will make slaves and he will make soldiers and instruments of war. You yourselves will be taken and made enslaved to this king. Going where he sends you and doing what he tells you. Even after this morning, the people cried out for a king saying, we need a king to lead us into battle. Well, David has certainly given the people a battle, a full-on war really, but instead of leading the people into this battle, David has become so comfortable with his reign, so sure of his power, so in control that he doesn't even leave the comfort of that cedar house that he built. Instead, David sends all of Israel And David stayed home. With the scene set, David's actions in Jerusalem come into focus. The next few verses begin the story of David's personal violence. And the action happens rather quickly. David, awakening from an evening nap, takes a stroll on his rooftop. From that rooftop, he sees something else that is worth taking. A beautiful woman bathing. As a geographical aside, archaeologists have found what they believe to be David's palace. And from its place, you can see down into the Kidron Valley where all of the houses of the city of David would have been. It would have been easy for David to observe just about anything happening in the city from this place. When David sees this beautiful woman bathing, what does he do? He sins. Something that we've already seen him do. David sent someone to find out who she is. And upon receiving the information of her identity, David once again sends. The NRSV translation covers up an important verb in this narration. It says that David sends messengers to get her. But a truer sense of what the Hebrew actually says is this. David sent his envoy and David took her. This is much more direct and it makes it clear that David is taking What David wants. This is not mere adultery between two consenting adults. This is something that is much more violent. David is once again doing exactly what the prophet Samuel had warned the people about. In verse 5, the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. One commentator that I read this week made a comment along the lines of, there are, these are words that in the best of circumstances change the world. Unfortunately, for many men and women, they are a harbinger of calamity. Cocksure David has finally run into an event that he cannot control. The woman that he has taken has become pregnant. The fact that she has just cleansed herself following menstruation and that her husband is one of David's most trusted mighty men and is off at war makes it clear that this child is David's. If the story had ended here, it would have been bad enough. But sadly, this story continues. The rest of the chapter tells the story of David's attempts to cover up his sin and eventually eliminate the problem. David sends a messenger to Joab telling him to send Uriah back to David. 
When Uriah arrives, David asks him a series of questions. How is the shalom of Joab, says David? How is the shalom of the people? How is the shalom of the war? How's the shalom of the violence, David asks. You might be convinced that David actually cares about the well-being of these subjects, but the narrator shows that shalom is the farthest thing from David's mind by giving no interest to whatever reply Uriah might have given. Instead, David immediately turns to cover up his crime. Go down to your home and wash your feet, says David. Now, this isn't a uh, universal truth in the Bible, but here's a little tidbit of information for those of you that like to read the Bible closely. Often in the Hebrew scriptures, when the foot or the leg of a man is mentioned, a well-known Hebrew euphemism is being employed. The use of the word feet often implies a certain male anatomical feature. Wash your feet does not mean wash your feet. This is David's effort to cover up his offense. If Uriah washes his feet, then the child can be assigned to him. Uriah, however, even though he is not even an Israelite but a Hittite, responds with honor and loyalty to his fellow soldiers, to his king, and to the God of Israel. It was a common practice, and some would argue even a commandment spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy for soldiers to remain celibate during times of war. Uriah says that while the armies of God and the armies of Israel and the ark of God are out in the field, he will not go down to his home to eat or to drink or to lie with his wife. Uriah's behavior is a stark contrast to David's. Where David lounges in his palace, Uriah is in the field with the men in the ark of God. Where David takes what he wants, Uriah denies the privilege that he's offered in the name of solidarity with his people. David has one more desperate trick up his sleeve and he gets Uriah drunk, sure that this will result in what he wants it to result in. But Uriah still, instead of going home, sleeps at the palace with the servants. David's deceitful plan to cover up this misdeed has failed and his conniving becomes even worse. When David realizes that Uriah will not conform to his plan, he feels that he must move on to the next part of a strategy. Murder. David once again sins. This time he sends Uriah with a message for Joab with the order to send Uriah to the front line and abandon him. Uriah is sent carrying his own death sentence and he delivers it like the honorable and loyal man that he's portrayed to be. Joab receives the order and promptly sends Uriah to the place of the fiercest battle nearest the city wall and Uriah and several other officers are killed. The subsequent dialogue between Joab and David is facilitated, of course, through sending a messenger. Joab reports that he's lost several soldiers and anticipates David's anger over this. As explanation, before he even says that Uriah is one of the soldiers that died... Joab brings up the death of somebody named Abimelech. Abimelech's story can be found in the book of Judges. There have already been in this story a few remez that allude to the story of Abimelech, but now he's explicitly mentioned. Abimelech was one of the many, many sons of Gideon. Gideon had been a righteous judge and so was so well loved by the people of Israel that the people of Israel sought to make Gideon their king. Gideon. 
Gideon protested and wouldn't allow it. After Gideon's death, Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, decided that he wanted what his father had refused. Abimelech plotted to and succeeded in killing 70 of his brothers and took for himself the title of king. Abimelech's downfall came, though, when he attacked those that had helped him to get his position. And he took his army into a city, surrounded a tower where they had fled, and stepped just a little too closely where an unnamed woman drops a millstone and crushes his skull. Abimelech's story is the first real story of the monarchy in Israel, and the story is a disaster. It's a story of greed, deception, murder, and a man that will do anything to take what he wants. Abimelech's reign of terror even led to a fracture among the nation, tearing the nation in two in a bloody civil war. Does this sound a little familiar? Through the voice of Joab, the narrator in our story today is warning David of what his actions will result in. And for those of us from our vantage point looking at this story, we know how the story of the Israelite monarchy ends. Abimelech was killed by a lethal unnamed woman and David, according to Joab, has now put his own reign at risk because of another woman. When David hears this news from the messenger, he sends one more message back to Joab that says, do not let this be evil in your eyes. You might be reminded of the words that are, of a phrase that are often repeated in that book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The king was supposed to be a solution to the problems of the book of Judges. But David, as king, has now taken the authority upon himself to declare what is and is not evil and what is and is not sin. King David was a man that was given everything. Money, wives, political and military power, a cunning mind, numerous descendants. And yet the man wanted more, and so he took more. Unfortunately for us, our story ends on this sour note today. And as we leave here, we may feel that this story is unresolved. And for today, it is. But there's one thing at the end of the 11th chapter and moving into the 12th chapter that the writer gives us that will help us move forward. For the first time in this narrative, God actually enters the picture. God has been missing from the narrative except for the mention of the ark so far. But for the first time, God comes into the story. David, it said, was used to being in control. But in this story, he discovers several things that he cannot control. He can't control Bathsheba's body. He can't control Uriah's honor or his principles. He can't control how his orders are carried out by Joab. And in this final line that we're about to re read, we know that he cannot control the God that he had wanted to put in a box. Because now the one with the real power has noticed what has happened. The text says that David had done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David is not the moral authority that he claims to be. And now the one with the real power uses it. God sends his prophet. 
Our closing prayer this morning will be in the form of a visual liturgy. This story is devastating for a lot of different reasons. And next week as we move forward, we will hear what happens in the encounter between David and the prophet Nathan. Psalm 51 is said to have been written by David in response to that encounter. And so this visual liturgy that we'll watch today and pray today is a prayer about what has come before and a prayer of repentance. Will you pray with me?